see everyone here today. I know you guys are very excited about uh, wanting to spend time talking with one another. And don't worry, you'll have plenty of time to do that after, uh, after the service is over. Um, one thing that we, uh, we're going to do, and uh, go ahead, uh, Tracy, Jordan, would you come up here? Uh, I've been preparing myself, but I might start crying. I apologize. Um, we, we are eternally blessed to have each other with us in our lives. And uh, it is very hard because uh, sometimes people come into your life and it's a wonderful, joyous thing. Sometimes people go out of your life. It's a hard thing, but it's a good thing. Um, and Tracy and Jordan are moving this week to Bend, Oregon. And I know that that's a hard thing. Um, but at the same time, it's an exciting thing. It's exciting about a new adventure in their life, a new chapter, a uh, new uh, exciting path going forward, and exciting ways to do family and, and work and everything like that. So we're excited. Well, at the same time, we're grieving, um, and it's sort of get a mix of emotions. But we wanted to pray over them and bless them and send them on their way. So if you, would, if you are actually a, a children's worker or you are a child and you would like to come and Jordan, can you stand up right there, bud? If you want to come and lay your hands on Jordan, come on up. And if you know Tracy and you love Tracy, would you come up here and lay your hands on Tracy? We're going to lay uh, hands on these guys, and I'm going to pray for them. Come on up. If you're, uh, if you're still in your seats, would you stretch your hands this way? We're going to pray for these guys. Lord, we thank you so much. Thank you, God, for the good friendship that we have found in these wonderful people. Thank you, Lord, for Jordan. Thank you, God, for his spirit, Lord, for the beauty that you've put inside of his heart, God. You, uh, it's no wonder that you told us that we need to look to children to discover things about you because here is a young man who has discovered truth about you and, and captures it in his joy and his enthusiasm. So please be with him, God, as he grows and, and be with him on a daily basis. And Lord, for Tracy, thank you for this man of God, this man who is uh, writing his life, who's living out his life as a father. And I pray that you would come alongside of him in your spirit and give him the strength and expand his capacity, God, to, in order to do the things that you have called him to. The ambitions of his heart are going to come to fruition because of the power of the Spirit that's living inside of him. So, Lord, would you strengthen him and encourage him. We pray for open doors, God, where he's going. We pray for a blessing where he's going. Would you put your blessing upon this family, God, as we send them out of this place. Let them know that you go with them, Lord, and that you are not staying here, but you are going with them. Thank you, God, for this family. Bless them in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Would you today give him an extra big hug? Jordan, this is for you, baby. Come here. Oh. Love you, buddy. That's for you, okay? All right. Uh, we're going to also invite all the kids up to come and join Jordan, and we're going to pray for our kids and send them down for the children's church. I know all the kids just went back to their seats. Is there a grandparent here who would like to pray for our kids? Debbie, go ahead. 
Would you stretch your hands this way one more time? We're going to pray for our kids before we send them downstairs. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for our future generation. We thank you for these saints, Lord, these children, Father. I pray you would keep in their hearts, in their minds, and we come against the enemy as they go out into the world. He wants to rob, steal, and destroy what you have planted in their heart. We claim it, Lord, that it would not be taken away. Yes, Lord. What is put in their hearts today and every day through their parents and through you, Jesus, would not be stolen. We pray for them, Lord. We lift them up in Jesus' name. And be with the, the teachers, Lord. We thank you for these teachers. We thank you mm-hmm. for instilling your word into these young lives. Thank you, Jesus, in your precious Holy Son's name. Amen. Amen. Give them a high five as they head down there. <laughs> All right. Well, praise God. It's uh it's a good day to come together to worship God to fellowship with one another, even if it's uh, uh, part, you know, sad, part happy. Guys, life is like that. Life is up and down. Life is full of grief and sorrow and laughter and joy. Life is full of all those things. And if you want to have the laughter and the joy, you want to have the happiness of friendship, then on one hand, you have to be ready to accept the sorrow that comes with that. You know, it's like people who get married and they're all starry-eyed about what this relationship is going to be. A year into that the stars have gone, you know. They've come to the reality of what marriage is about. Yeah, amen. All right. Other than Kim. You got to say that because Donna's in here, right? Other than Kim and Donna. When, but you have to go through the hard times to get to the wonderful times. Isn't that true? And, and life is not always exciting and, and happy and joyful, but the sorrow, even the sorrow reminds us that it's worth it to be alive, that it's worth it to be in relationship with one another. So you know what? I'm happy on some level. I'm very happy that my heart is a bit full of sorrow to see Tracy and Jordan Lee because it means that I know my heart has been given to them uh, in a sense, and, and I can honestly say that. So uh, today, especially, give them a hug before they get out of here. But okay, enough about that or else I'm really going to start crying. Um, it is a privilege and a blessing to be able to be here today, to be able to read scripture together and worship together and preach with you. Do you know that there's uh, places, and of course we're going to find out uh, later uh, when we talk more about missions, there's places in this world where even owning a Bible, or especially preaching out of a Bible in a public setting like this, would be very difficult to do, would be discouraged or even illegal to do. So we have a lot of privilege to be able to even come together and worship and read this. And I hope that you take that privilege with you. I hope that when you get home during your week that you spend some time reading your Bible and enjoying the privilege of having a Bible in your language that you can understand. Uh, so read it. It's important. And today we're going to read a passage from the Gospel of Mark. And we're sort of in preparation for a series that we're starting that I announced last week. We're going to start it next month, and it's called Through Christ, where we're going to talk about what it means to see and encounter people through Christ. So today is sort of an introductory sermon to that, because we're going to have a couple weeks where we talk about other things. So I want to have somebody read out of Mark 8. If you would open your Bible to Mark 8, I want to have somebody read. There's eight verses in Mark 8 from verse 27 to verse 34. Dave? As long as your wife clicks along with you. 
<laughs> okay, Dave's going to read that for us. Go ahead, Dave. Thank you so much. We actually missed, there's two verses there we forgot to put on there, Kim. That's all right, I'll fill it in. Uh, After Jesus says that he's going to be killed and after three days raised again, he said all these things quite openly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things but on human things. And then he called the crowds and said, if anyone wants to be my follower. So there's that. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> that was you and me. That was my fault, Kim. My apologies. Let's pray together. Lord, would you open your word to us? God, would you open your word that we might hear and receive something that you have for us this morning? In your name, amen. So the Gospels are meant to explain to us, to teach us, to show us who Jesus is. The first four books of the New Testament are the Gospels. Uh, this is all uh, for you to take with you on your next Jeopardy show. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are Gospels, uh, and they're written to basically explain to you who Jesus is and was, what he did when he was here on earth, his ministry, his birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. That's what the Gospels are here for. And in Mark, in this passage in Mark, you, you really see that coming to a forefront. Jesus literally is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do people, you know, imagine that I am? Well, I'm out here doing miracles. I'm teaching. Who do people say that I am? And say, so a prophet, Elijah. Honestly, Jesus, they don't really know. There's some out, there conflicting, you know, answers out there. And Jesus says to them, who do you think that I am? Who do you think that I am? I know what other people are saying about me. I know what the world says about me. I know what people think that I am. People have all sorts of ideas today who Jesus is. Who do you think that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, right, powerfully, he responds, you are the Messiah. Others think that you're a prophet. They think you're a radical. They think you're crazy. They think you're a teacher. But I know that you're the Messiah. And it so often happens in the Gospels. It so often happens in life. We have these moments, these epiphanies, and we think to ourselves, I've got it, and then something happens and it goes off the rails a little bit. So let's, we're going to start in verse 30, actually. Would you go back to verse 30? I'm going to read verse 30 to the beginning of verse 32. Peter says, you are the Messiah, and then all of a sudden, really quickly in verse 30, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone about him. Don't tell anybody about it. Next verse. And then he began to teach them. That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed and rise after three days. And the beginning of verse 32, it says, 
he said all of these things quite openly. He said these things openly to them. He didn't hold anything back. He didn't hide any truth. He said them quite openly. Jesus' identity as the Messiah is intimately and irrevocably linked to his suffering. The identity of Jesus, who Jesus is, is linked to what he does. His identity and what he does are linked. He's not just the Messiah. He's the suffering servant. He's not just the king who has come to rule. He's also come to die. And Peter has got the right theology. He's got the right idea. He's got the right identity. He knows who Jesus is. But Peter has not quite worked out what? The what of Jesus. The what he is supposed to do. How many of you guys know you can have a great idea of what Jesus is, but your life, the doing part of your life, might not be all sorted yet? Have you ever known somebody who, out of their mouth, you say, this person knows Jesus, but then you look at your life and you say, whoa, I'm not so sure now. Their theology, their mind, their, the idea of their identity of Jesus, who Jesus is, is not linked to what they do, to the practical living out everyday thing. And that's what Peter is struggling with here. He's got the right theology. He doesn't have the right, what does that mean? He doesn't have the right living it out. Peter's got one but not the other. And this is very difficult for Peter to grasp. Right Here he's followed this man. He now has confessed. He believes that he's the Messiah. He really believes in this guy. Oh, thank you. You put it up there. He really believes in this guy. And he thinks that he's the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, a servant of God like Moses, like Elijah. And I'm sure that Peter assumed that Jesus would eventually die. All those people died. David died, Elijah died, Moses died. And I'm sure in Peter's mind he's thinking to himself, eventually probably Jesus will die. Um, but to have Jesus say, actually, I'm going to be very soon rejected, tortured, killed, and then in three days rise again. Peter, that's too much for Peter. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't like it. So he takes Jesus aside, right? It says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He takes him aside confidentially, right? Jesus, come here for a second, you know. Okay, we've got these disciples over here. I want to have a conversation with you. Okay. You, you can't say stuff like that, all right? It's not, this is not who you are, Jesus, uh, don't say that. It can't be true. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, You're the Messiah. You're supposed to rule in power. You're not supposed to suffer. You're not supposed to die. Don't say that, Jesus. That's silly. That's nonsense. He rebukes him. And it's ironic, right? This guy that he just confessed was the Messiah, he now begins to rebuke. The same Messiah who he admitted, this is the Messiah, he begins to take him aside and rebuke him. And Jesus turns. And look, at this is so This is so cool. Jesus turns, and he, listen, not to Peter. He turns to his disciples. Why? Because what Peter is expressing, all the disciples are thinking the same thing. And Jesus wants to make very certain that everybody understands this. Because I think that this is important because it's something that I think, on some level, we also believe. We know the story Right? We have crosses all over the place. We know the story about how Jesus suffers. But somehow in our minds, I think, we have divorced 
the suffering of Jesus from the power of his resurrection. Because there's happiness and gladness and joy in his resurrection. And there's only grief and sorrow and pain in his suffering. So we've decided to opt for one over the other. The world that we're living in is very opposed to suffering. Our entire society is built up so that we can deny suffering. We can put suffering away. We have whole institutions. Their sole objective is that when your parents and grandparents get to a certain age, you don't have to see them suffer. You can put them away to let somebody else deal with them. We try and take suffering and push it to the margins of society. That's what we do. We have divorced the identity of Jesus from what he does because what he does is too painful to acknowledge. But let me tell you something. You cannot resurrect something that has not died. There is no power in the resurrection if there's not first a death. There's no power there unless you're willing to walk through the suffering. The identity of Jesus as Messiah, as King, is intimately connected to his role as the suffering servant. And you can't separate one from the other. So what happens? Right? We read on here. He turns to his disciples and then begins to rebuke Peter. In Mark 1, if you were beginning in Mark 1, we read about Jesus' first encounter with Satan, right? This is what he calls Peter, he calls him Satan. In Mark 1, you have the first encounter that Mark records of Jesus and Satan. And it says that basically Jesus was taken out into the wilderness where he was uh, tested by Satan for 40 days. In Matthew chapter 4, there's a bit of a longer explanation of what that time was actually like. And I want to kind of sum it up for you just a sec. In essence, Satan came repeatedly to Jesus in the desert. He's offering him food. He's offering him fame. Ultimately, he's offering him power in an attempt to make Jesus' life easier. Right? So he comes to him first and he says, Jesus, you look so hungry. Jesus had been fasting. You look so hungry. Look, why don't you take these stones here and turn them into bread for yourself and eat them? Why you got to suffer like that, Jesus? Why you got to fast like that? You're hungry. Don't you know that God wants you to be happy? Don't you know that God wants you to not suffer? Turn these stones into bread and eat them. You know, you don't have to suffer like that. And he says to him, Jesus, look, think of this, man. Think of the grand entrance you would make if you were at the top of the temple and you jumped off the top of the temple and landed in the middle of the temple square. Man, that would really jumpstart your ministry, you know. That'd be great. People would look at you and you know God's going to protect you. Why go through the trouble of trying to convince these people that you're the son of God? You could just throw yourself off the top of the temple and they would know right away. Why struggle through trying to convince these people? Jesus, take this route. It's the easy way. And then finally he says, Jesus, look at the kingdoms of the world. Says Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. Look at all these kingdoms. I know that you love these people. I know that you want these people. I can give you these people right now. I can give you every kingdom on earth right now. All you have to do is worship me. I can give you everything. I know what you've come to do. Why go through the pain of the cross? Why go through crucifixion? Why go through rejection? Why go through all the tears and the sufferings and the torture? I could give it to you right now. All you have to do is worship me, Jesus. Why suffer for you? And here in Mark 8, Jesus recognizes that same voice in Peter. You don't have to suffer, Jesus. 
Die? No, you don't have to die. You're the Messiah. Why are you thinking about suffering like that? That's not right. There's got to be an easier way, Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and he says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. I've already heard your voice before. Sisters and brothers, there's times in your life where the convenient thing, the easiest path, the path that avoids suffering, is also the thing that's going to be most damaging to you. There's times in your life where the thing that is easiest for you is going to be the most damaging for you. You're going to hear the voice of Satan. Oh, come on, you don't, you don't really have to suffer through this. You don't deserve this. You've earned a little bit extra. You know, you deserve a little bit extra. Why are you suffering? God wants you to be happy. You know, it's no fun to act like this. And it's not that big of a deal. Someone's going to violate your trust and Satan's going to come and say, hate this person. Why you got to suffer forgiving them? No. They've, they've hurt your trust. You should hate them. Somebody's going to get a promotion that you think you deserve and Satan's going to come and say, man, just you need to covet that position. You should have had it anyways. That should have been yours. Why suffer through trying to get through your feelings of disappointment? No, that person is the problem. Satan's going to come to you and can try to convince you that the way that is hard, that the way that is right, is the wrong way because it involves suffering. You need to plant your feet. You need to look that voice right in the eye and say, get behind me, Satan, because you have to trying to put my mind on things of this world, and my mind is on divine things today. Reject that voice, beloved. Have nothing to do with it, because what you do is intimately connected to who you are. What you do matters, and it's connected to who you are. Verse 34. I want to spend the rest of our time here talking on this verse. Summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. First of all, notice that Jesus calls the crowd back together, right? Summoning the crowd along with the disciples. He wants everybody there. He wants everybody to hear what he's going to say. Not just his disciples. He's, okay, everybody get together. I want to say something. And the signal there is this is also for us today. This is for our church. This is for our world today. He's bringing everybody together. I have something important to tell you. And also notice that he summons the crowd along with his disciples. Along with his disciples. If you've ever received a corrective word from God, has anybody besides me ever received a corrective word from God? You will notice, you will notice that on the heels of that corrective word, the love of God comes in swift and strong. That's a good way to tell whether you're being corrected by God or whether you're receiving some condemnation from something else. Is that after that corrective word comes, the love of God comes right in. So Jesus has, brings this corrective word, this very strong corrective word to his disciples and to Peter. And then it says, summoning the crowd along with his disciples. Come back, guys. Come on. Come on. Come on. I got something I want to tell you. you know? He doesn't just leave them. doesn't just tell them, get behind me, Satan, and then move on. He wants to assure them. There's something, there's a love here, and I want to teach you something. It's not just about correcting. I want to teach you something, right? So he calls them all back together again. And uh, he calls them and he says, if you want to be my disciples, if anybody wants to be my disciples, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. 
And what does it mean to deny yourself? And I think that there's a quick and easy explanation as to what it means to deny yourself. And I think that it goes something like this, and this is sort of maybe a more classic interpretation of this passage, is that we would say something like, uh, to deny ourselves means that we need to put others above ourselves. It means that we need to not think uh, highly of ourselves. It means that we need to suffer for other people and suffer for the sake of others. It means that we need to not assert ourselves. Um, And I think that there's a good reason why that particular interpretation is not a great interpretation. I'm going to say it's wrong. I'm going to say it's not the best. And the reason why I think it's not the best interpretation of what Jesus is trying to communicate here is because we've seen the fruit of that interpretation be some really tragic things. And I'll give you a couple, two examples of of what I mean when I say that. During 250 years of slavery in this land, this particular passage was used as a way, uh, as preachers in in different parts of uh, this land use this passage as a way to try to convince people that their role as a slave was God-ordained. Deny yourself. It's actually to your benefit to serve other people. So in a way, your slavery is actually a good thing. And what you need to do is simply live your life as a slave in obedience to your masters. Amen, brother. It was a way of attempting to use Scripture to force people into servitude. This last Wednesday was Juneteenth. Do you guys know Juneteenth? Anybody? Jay, Debbie, y'all are going to know it now. You can celebrate it next year. Juneteenth is a, a holiday is celebrated on June 19th, 1860. It celebrates 1865, June 19th. And this is when uh, Union troops landed in Galveston, Texas. Uh, and informed the slaves there that they were free. For some reason, the white slave owners had not told them about the Emancipation Proclamation, which had gone into effect two and a half years earlier. And so when Union troops arrived in Galveston, Texas, they were able to tell people on June 19th, guess what, two and a half years ago, you received freedom. And so it's a, it's a celebration of sort of the, the last uh, group of slaves that were told about emancipation um, in the Civil War time period. And that's an exciting, that's a good thing. So my question is, what does it mean to those living under the reality of slavery for Jesus to say, deny yourself? And I want to explain what I think that means later, but but that's one reason why I think that we need to rethink this passage. The other one, I want to read to you um, a book. This is a book called Sin, Pride, and Self-Acceptance by Terry Cooper, who was a psychologist. And, and he uh, kind of talks about what does it mean to talk about sin and pride um, uh, among people today, and especially among people who are already suffering from issues of self-acceptance. So I want to read you. This is a scenario that he, he wrote about here. It says, An exhausted woman attends a Sunday service looking for comfort and strength to face the upcoming week. Her life seems so concerned with the needs of her children, the expectations of her husband, the demands of her employer, the domestic tasks surrounding her, that she is worn out. Somehow, she as a person seems to be drowning in her relationships. She needs more help from her husband. She knows she needs to stop enabling her kids. and She recognizes that she needs to break her approval-seeking pattern of life. Within this woman is a small but growing voice of assertiveness and justice. 
Perhaps it is time for her to be her own ally and stand up for herself. She has denied her own thoughts, feelings, preferences for so long that she will have to work hard to rediscover what they are. She awaits the sermon as she hopes to find a source that will nourish her spirit, her identity, and her courage. And then, of course, she hears a sermon on Mark 8.34 in which the pastor explains that in order to be a Christian, you need to deny yourself. In order to be a Christian, you need to put yourself in the back seat and allow others to be in the front seat. And this woman who's been struggling with the courage to become more self-assertive and recognize that she has some rights is invited to throw these discoveries overboard and sink back into a selfless world of passivity. Pride is the enemy, so God forbid that she should think of herself. Her lifestyle of selflessness, her fear of her own freedom, and her self-destructive accommodations to others are all given a religious endorsement. Implicitly, she is praised for maintaining the status quo, avoiding her inner life, and losing herself in her relationships. And that's a very real concern that I have, honestly, is that we, I don't think there's anything wrong with Jesus' words, to be honest. I don't. But I know and acknowledge the fact that Scripture throughout history has been used in order to hurt people has been used in order to produce the kind of social situations in which people feel helpless, and that's not right. So if we believe that Jesus' words are good and true, then what does he mean? Where does the life in Jesus' words lie to this woman, to other people, to people oppressed by slavery? What is it? So I'm going to look at this passage again, and I'm going to kind of give you what I felt like this, honestly, this week I struggled through that question, and I feel like God really uh, opened my eyes to understand what it was that he was trying to communicate. So verse 34 again, here we go. Summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to be my follower, he or she must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Here Jesus is not talking about being a doormat, but allowing your identity and your actions to be defined and set by God. To deny yourself means that you have decided to accept the Lord's ruling on your life rather than your own ruling. It means that you're looking to God to define who you are and not to yourself. It means that you're setting your mind on divine things and not human things, like Jesus tells Peter. It means that I, I must confess myself and my own being I must not confess this. I must not confess myself, nor cling to myself, but abandon myself in a radical renunciation of myself. And not merely my sins. I must no longer seek to establish my life of myself, but resolutely accept death and allow myself to be established by Christ in discipleship. For those of us who enjoy the privileges of our world, who have stable jobs, who in general do well in this life, The demand of Jesus to deny yourself means forsaking the elusive seductiveness of those things in exchange for the honest appraisal of God. Guys, God does not care how many cars you own. He does not care about your bank account. He doesn't care about what kind of social power you have. Honestly, he's not impressed by those things. So deny yourself the temptation to view those things as life-giving for you. For those of us like the woman that we read about, Right? who are already drowning in a lack of self-confidence and who feel like they shouldn't even lift their heads up in public. 
To deny yourself means to believe not what you say about yourself, but about what God says about you. So I want to ask you, church, what does God say about you? Can you tell me? Can you remember some scriptures? What does God say about you and who you are? Tell me all down. Apple of his eye. Who else? Fearfully and wonderfully made. Anybody else? Yes, kings and priests. Anybody else? What was that? His workmanship created for good works. Yes. So let me tell you something. If you are today drowning in a lack of self-confidence, to deny yourself means to believe those things about you instead of the own thoughts that you have in your heads. When Jesus says deny yourself, He's saying, don't look to yourself to tell you who you are. Look to me to tell you who you are. You are made in workmanship. You are a workmanship of my hands, made for good works. You are made in the image of God. You're a life-bearing image-bearer of God. You are a son and a daughter of a king. That's who you are. And when you go about your day and you begin to hear those thoughts repeating in your mind about who you are and self-denigrating and beginning to put yourself down, you say, no, I'm going to deny myself the ability to tell myself who I am and I'm going to look to God to allow him to tell me who I am. And this is who you are in Christ. You are an heir, an heir to an eternal inheritance. That's who you are. So that's what it means to deny yourself. Therefore, deny yourself the right to identify yourself. Allow God to do it. To those who are oppressed by society, who daily face a world who has defined them as other, as outcast, as slave, as illegal. I'm sorry, did I hit something there? For those who are living, who have had to face the reality that other people have decided already who they are and what their place is in society. To deny yourself means that you are going to look to God to define who you are and not to other people around you. The lowest slave working in a plantation in Louisiana is defined by God as something different than their circumstances define them as. And the same is true today. Those of us who are living on the fringes of society, those of us who are homeless, those of us who suffer economic injustice. If you had a chance to look at society to define you, let me tell you something, you are going to be deeply depressed. You need to look to God to define who you are. Because God's definition of you transcends all of society's definition. And it needs to trump all of society's definitions of who you are. I want to read you one more passage out of a book. This is theologian Howard Thurman. He wrote an amazing book back in, what is this, 1949, called Jesus and the Disinherited. It was a book that set into motion the civil rights movement. In fact, it says that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. used to carry a copy with this every time he wrote on a plane so he could reread it. And how many know he wrote on a plane like every other day? So this book was in his pocket. I highly recommend it to you. I've read it several times. It's a great book. And I want to read a a passage to you. Howard Thurman is trying to answer the question, who is Jesus to those who have their back up against the wall? Who is Jesus to people who have been so oppressed by society that they've begun to lose sight of their own humanity? Who is Jesus to them? I want to read you a portion here. It says, this is the end of, uh, I think it's the second chapter. He says, when I was a very small boy, Halley's Comet visited our solar system. And for a long time, I did not get to see the giant in the sky because I was not permitted to remain up after sundown. My friends had seen it, 
And they told me perfectly amazing things about it. Also, I had heard of what were called comet pills. The theory was that if the pills were taken according to directions, then when the tail of the comet struck the earth, one would not be consumed. It's like the 1920s, 1930s. And he's a kid. You know how kids are. One night I was wakened by my mother, who told me to dress quickly and come with her into the backyard to see the comet. I shall never forget it if I live forever. My mother stood with me, her hand resting on my shoulder, while I, in utter speechless awe, beheld the great spectacle with its flame of light spreading across the heavens. The silence was like that of absolute motion. Finally, after what seemed to be an interminable time interval, I found my speech, and with bated breath, I I said, What will happen to us if that comet falls out of the sky? And my mother's silence was so long that I looked from the comet to her face, and there I beheld something in her countenance that I had only seen once before when I came into her room and found her in prayer. And when she spoke, she said, Nothing will happen to us, Howard. God will take care of us. Let me tell you something. To those who live on the fringes of society, you want to know what's going to happen to us. God is going to take care of you. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a theologian who died in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. He wrote that those who suffer, even if they don't know Christ, God has taken them under their wings. Christ has claimed them as his own because he is the one who suffers. And those who suffer, suffer alongside of Christ. Those who have to walk their own Via Dolorosa, those who have to come to a place of suffering because of their society, because of the circumstances of their life, Jesus suffers alongside of them and with them. He claims them as his own. And when Jesus says to them, deny yourself, it means don't give in to the fear. Don't give in to the deception. Don't allow yourself to be tempted by hatred. Recognize that God the faithful one, has spoken forth your name from the beginning of time. Recognize that in the midst of utter destruction, God will protect you. To be able to say on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. To be able to say a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. To look at Haley's Comet, plant your feet firmly in the ground, and say no, Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, fear. Get behind me, deception. Get behind me, a false sense of identity. I'm not going to allow you to put my mind on things of earth. I'm putting my mind on divine things. I know who I am. I know why I'm here. I am an heir of an eternal inheritance. Deny yourself, church. Deny yourself. Don't look at the vanity and pride of your heart. Don't allow your self-deprecation to define who you are. Don't allow a callous world to tell you what you are worth. Deny yourself. Take up your burden and follow Jesus. You are of Christ and in Christ, and you are meant to live your life through Christ. Finally, beloved, just as Jesus intimately linked the truth of his identity to what he did and his suffering, so too your identity is intimately linked to what you do. Disciples follow after their teacher, and we follow after Jesus. And Christ has a claim on your life. 
as we gather this Wednesday, as we gather next Sunday to celebrate the ways in which God is moving through this church, remember that you have a role to play here. You have a purpose here. Not just in our body, but in your family, in your community, in your world. To be a disciple of Christ means to hold nothing back. To be in complete surrender. It means foregoing your own life in preference for the divine claim on your life. Christ has a claim on your life, not just your mind, not just your spirit, but your body too. Take up your cross. Follow after him. Let's pray together. God, we worship you for the way in which you have spoken into our darkness. For the way in which the light of your Son has come to overwhelm the darkness that we find in our own souls. And Lord, I speak out to those of us among us who need to deny ourselves. Lord, would you assist us to say no, no to ourselves, to deny ourselves the privilege of defining us, but rather to look to you as the author and the perfecter of our faith, to not be content with what the world says about us, to not be content with what the world says about you, Jesus, but to know that you are the Messiah and the suffering servant who has come to die in order that we might live. Lord, we look to you, and I pray that if there is someone here today who says, you know what, I'm, I'm finished with looking at the world. I'm finished with looking at myself to define who I am. I'm done with that. I'm done with that part of my life. I've come to the end of myself. I've come to the end of what this world wants to say about me. There's somebody here today who says, you know what, I need God to define who I am. I need to allow Jesus to come into my life in order to tell me who I am because I'm tired of trying to find it on my own. If that's you today, I want to encourage you. Would you raise up your hand? Would you lift up your hand? Yes. There's more. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Can all of us just put our hands out in front of us like we're going to receive something? Heavenly Father, I thank you because you have given us all things through your Son. And right now, Jesus, if this, is, if this is your spirit, just pray this in your heart. Jesus, I give my life to you. I accept your claim on my heart. I give up all of my own claims, Lord. I shed all the things that have ever been spoken about me. I reject all of the false identities people have given me. And I take on what you have said about me. I accept you into my heart to live and rule and suffer through me. Let my life be lived out as a reflection of you. Be with me, Lord. At the end of the Gospels, Jesus comes to his disciples and he says to them, I am with you, even to the end of the age.
I want you to know, church, Jesus is with you. Though the way may look dark at times, he's with you. On the mountaintops of happiness and rejoicing, he's with you there. Down into the depths of the valley, he's with you there. Know that. And Lord, I lift up this body to you. Come among us, Jesus. Teach us who we are. Teach us why you have us here. Move through us, God. Lord, for those of us who need encouragement, would you encourage them? By your spirit, God, would you heal bodies that need healing today? Come and do your work, O oh Lord. It's not about what we can do. It's about what you are doing through us. So, Lord, would you heal hearts? And I pray for those who are suffering. Would you lift up their heads, O oh Lord? And remind them that you suffered as well. That you walked through the valley of death. Thank you, Jesus. And now, brothers and sisters, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand without blemish in the presence of his glory with rejoicing. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority both now, before all time, and forever. Amen. Amen. Would you encourage somebody near you, give them a hug, give them a prayer. We love you guys. We'll see you Wednesday night, and we'll see you next week.